Mississippi is very particular. Uh, it's the state with the most lynchings. Uh, it's a state that just holds uh, so much hurt, uh, national hurt. And so the flag, the flag is symbolic of that, right? Because this was the last state in the Union that had the Confederate emblem on their flag. That was Jad Abumrad, co-host and producer of the Radio Lab episode, The Flag and the Fury, which won a 2021 DuPont Columbia Award. The episode, reported primarily by producer Shima Oliai, explored the history of Mississippi's state flag. What started out as an historical audio documentary ended up turning into a breaking news story in the summer of 2020, when efforts to change the flag's design finally gained momentum. I'm Abby Wright. I run the prizes department at Columbia Journalism School, and I am joined today, as always, by my friend and colleague, Lisa R. Cohen. She is the director of the DuPont Columbia Awards. Lisa, tell us, what is the latest DuPont news? We, we are in the thick of submission season. This is the month when it all happens. Uh, the submission window for the 2022 DuPonts opened on May 1st, and the deadline to send in work is July 1, and like all good reporters, everybody does it towards the end. We're looking for the best audio and visual reporting out there. Yes, deadlines always help focus people's attention, especially journalists. And the good work is already rolling in. That's always good to hear. Uh, please remind the good people, Lisa, out there, what kind of journalism do the DuPonts honor? Well, the DuPonts are all about the original reporting. So whether it's feature-length documentaries or nightly news segments or podcasts, what it always comes down to is the reporting. And the Flag and the Fury is really a perfect example of that kind of reporting. It's got tons of history and context, and there's even a primer on flag design, believe it or not. But it really just shows an incredible depth of reporting. Yes, absolutely. We don't, we don't normally say this, but this is such a complex story that spans so many eras, has so many different characters and so many threads that we really recommend stopping now, going away, and listening to the actual Flag and the Fury episode before coming back to this conversation. Right. In case you haven't had a chance to listen to that Radiolab episode, there are a few main characters whose names are mentioned in the following podcast. The first is the writer, professor, and activist, Kiesi Lehman, who worked to change the Mississippi flag when he was a student at Millsaps College. And another one is Lauren Stennis, who was also at Millsaps College and was also working to change the flag design. And her story is complicated because her grandfather was the long-serving Senator John C. Stennis, who was a legendary segregationist. The other character it's probably important to mention is John Hawkins. Almost by accident, he became a cheerleader at Ole Miss in the 1980s. Hawkins is black, and at Ole Miss, it was traditional for cheerleaders to carry out and wave a Confederate flag, and he refused. His story is really astonishing. And again, you're in for a treat if you go listen to it now and then come back. But you'll hear in this conversation how persistent Shima had to be to reach him and to get him to tell his story in full for the first time. So let's get right to it. This is an edited version of the conversation with Radiolab hosts and producers, Jad Abumrad and Shima Oliai. And it starts with your favorite part of the job, right, Lisa? Getting to tell people they have won a DuPont silver baton. 
we have a little bit of news, and that is that the Flag and the Fury has been awarded a 2021 DuPont Columbia Award. You've won. Oh my God. What? What? Wow. Oh my God. Oh my God. That, that, I, wait, sorry, I, 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 that, oh wow. really? <laughs> <laughs> we can't cut. Oh my God, wow. Shima, oh, wow. high five. Congratulations. I guess uh, I should just ask you, like, why is this work so important? Why do you think the public should find it important? This story was, you know, you find one gorgeous, like, golden nugget of a connection um, happening in America that you're not seeing uh, reported, and you kind of follow that to all of these other places that excite you and make you want to broadcast what you found to the world. And in this episode, um, which we which we approached as like an audio documentary at first, we wanted to kind of do a deep dive of the New South. Um, this flag story in particular was about a woman. It started with a woman who had, you know, decided that she would take on the task of changing the Mississippi flag, but her grandfather was a segregationist. And then as, as we were reporting Mississippi in many different realms, like at a certain point, you just, through meeting all of these incredible Mississippians who altogether, I think we interviewed 40 different um, citizens, um, you start to be so inspired by the people there and also the courageous efforts that sometimes go unnoticed with John Hawkins' story, is, and which is where we started the episode, that one young man, like a 20-year-old in 1983, can decide, I'm not going to carry this flag, um, something that was so the norm at the time, and how that one act, which brought on so much hatred and you know, and anger and trauma to everyone around him was able to create something 40 years later. Yeah. I mean, I, I, everything that Shima just said, I mean, I, so I grew up in, I grew up in the South. I grew up in Tennessee. And for me, um, I've always been sort of fascinated by the stories we tell about the South. You know, I found when I left the South and I came to New York, uh, I would tell a story about the South, the place that I grew up in, that I knew was too simple. You know, I mean, there's a way in which those narratives get collapsed into like these two-dimensional, paper-thin uh, stories of what the place is. And so we, Shima and I, had always we we had had this idea of let's let's almost go state by state and look at the South and tell stories about this place, this place where I grew up. Stories that include so much more of the nuance and the and the and the and the, the diversity of peoples that live there, um, but Mississippi is very particular. I mean, I think it was was it Malcolm X who said, or, or I, I think it was Malcolm X who said, every state is Mississippi, basically uh, every state in America. What, what what was it he said? Yeah, every state south of Canada is Mississippi. There it is, and and his point was that Miss, Mississippi is America. In miniature, in a way, it is it is uh, a state that that holds so much of the racial trauma of America in, in its most heightened form. It it is the um, it is the blackest state in the union in terms of demographics. Uh, it's the state with the most lynchings. Uh, it's a state that just holds uh, so much hurt, uh, national hurt, 
And so the flag, the flag is symbolic of that, right? Because this was the last state in the Union that had the Confederate emblem on their flag. Uh, so just as a symbol, it was an interesting story to us. But what was fascinating to us in the reporting is that there, there was a 2001 referendum where the entire state kind of got together and I would say disgust, but really just raged. Both sides raged at each other about the prospect of taking this flag down. And what you hear in, the, in those uh, town hall meetings is kind of shocking. And so it, it, what we ended up doing, and we did this with a, a reporter, uh, a, a local reporter in Mississippi, Ashton Pittman, uh, we, we looked at, you know, who were those people in the audience? How did they get those ideas? And if you look at where those ideas come from, you can trace it back to these things called segregation academies, which were set up in the wake of Brown, Brown v. Board of Education. And um, they educated generations of people, generations of white Mississippians, with ideas uh, that exist to this day. And, and a shocking number of legislators in Mississippi were educated at these segregation academies. So if you ask yourself, how is it that this history is still with us? Well, you realize it's not history. It's, pre it's present day. And not only is it one third of the senators or representatives went to these segregationist academies, but also... Um, that's informing the legislation today. It's not just about the flag. So the flag kind of unfurled, um, for lack of a better metaphor, but it, it unfurled like this other truth of everything else happening in the state and everything everyone else was up against. Um, also, I'll, I'll just add one more piece to this. Um, the, the flag is a very particular thing in America. I mean, we don't have a king and a queen. So... Uh, the flag becomes kind of like the civic thing that we bow to, right? There's a we've always had this like very charged uh, thing with the flag in this country. Like we don't, I think we feel about our flag differently than most countries feel about theirs. So it felt important just because the flag is this strange kind of stand-in for so many things in America. Uh, and so it was really interesting just to talk to people who design flags. There's a whole world of vexillology about flag design and how do you make it mean the thing that it means. I was like a, it was like a wormhole into so many ideas. What is the name of the study again? Vexillology. Yes, we love that word. <laughs> yeah, it's a great word. So I have to say that was one of the things that I, that I wanted to point to as what made this work so wonderful is this idea that you're telling one narrative thread and then in the course of telling it, you, you can weave in all these completely disparate things that are fascinating and that tie in neatly. So you learn about the history of flags. You, you learn about these segregation schools and you learn about related adjacent kinds of topics as a function of the, the, the storytelling. Yeah, I mean, they, there's, a, there's always this idea, like the thing that we're always looking for is almost like that Whitman-esque universe in a blade of grass. You know, like you want to find that one thing that has everything in it. And uh, and when Shima found the story of the flag and uh, and we started to meet characters, every it just kind of kept getting bigger and bigger. I mean, the, what, every interview introduced us to layers and layers and it became that kind of universe in a in a in a in an object in a way. There's I have so many questions to ask about this. So you talk about like you're pulling a thread or you go in a wormhole, whatever metaphor it is, then you have so much material and this is always an issue like how do you 
lasso that and make it into something much smaller than all the work you've got. I sort of look to film for inspiration in terms of a process. And so, uh, you know, the thing that they do in film is they do storyboards, which are these sort of visual mock-ups of this, of the story. And, and, and Shima and I did that. We, we sort of like blocked out scene, 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 uh, almost like index cards, but not quite. And it was very clear initially that we had three basic stories. Uh, we had the cheerleading drama, which was the first domino to fall. That was the sort of, the, that was the catalytic moment. You had a kind of intertwined narrative between Kiese Lehman and Lauren Stennis uh, and their differing approaches to how to make change in the world. And then you had this gigantic play-by-play -play breaking news story of the Mississippi State Legislature. E any one of those three stories could have had three hours. And so it was a lot of, um, you know, just throwing the tape into buckets, uh, just listening, trying to sort of uh, cut it down. And particularly in the last part, you know, Shima was spending eight, ten hours a day listening to the legislator calling senators again and again and again. I, I felt like we were we were being crushed under a Niagara Falls of tape, even as we were producing the story. But it was just about kind of putting it in, putting it in, playing it for people, just trying to notice when they got bored, and then cutting it back. And so it was this kind of like just rapid, rapid versioning over the last, I would say, what, Shima, like a week? And then it just kind of got out, you know? The breaking news part of it is just a staggering thing. Like, you had no idea getting into this that this was what was going to happen, right? Yeah. It, and it was, a, it, was a, it was a funny thing because we, we had been working on the story for a long time. Uh, and there was a moment uh, where we... we we had a cool story, but it was, there was this sense, well, the story had no end. You know, I mean, the flag's never going to change. It's been up there for 126 years. It'll be another 126 years. Uh, we had all of these characters saying, well, I hope the flag changes in my lifetime. You know, we had a lot of that kind of stuff. And, and so there was not, like, there was no ending to the story. And then suddenly um, George Floyd happens. And then it was just like, tectonic plates just shifted and then we were just running as fast as we can to catch up yeah it felt like good fortune coming from all of the the sweat and tears leading up to that moment but yeah it was um it was interesting because we had been so focused on the emotional stories of john hawkins and lauren stennis and casey layman and then it became a day-by-day -day playbook what's happening at the senate what's happening in the house um getting reps back and forth coming from session, getting the intel from other reporters that are on the ground level there, and also like watching newsreels, grabbing the tape from each newsreel. It was just this moment where I was trying to capture everything as it was happening, like a good reporter, but then also as an audio maker of a story, I really wanted to be there with people as they were going through heartbreak, you know, and it was a very tumultuous moment for many Mississippians on both sides. And so um, and then at the end of the day, I, I literally was like hunkered down in a room where it was like a one woman like I felt like I was in battle, which is interesting coming back to the vexillology and, and flags in battle, just gathering everything at the end of the day, cutting it all up, sending it to Jad and um, 
yeah, we we got lucky. It was it was such a that's that's the best part of reporting too is just getting a moment where you hit gold and you didn't know. And Jad and I have had a lot of that's been kind of a great experience we've had working together is we start with something and then we hit gold. Um, we're just interested naturally. Yeah. Shima, were you on the ground by yourself? Did you have a team? No, it's no not not until the last two weeks where we had a little bit of production support. Uh, we are as we are a solo kind of venture. So I was, you know, thinking this was going to be a long form deep dive, like a more of a Ken's Burnish kind of documentary series. And then um, I literally flew from my hometown to New York and then stationed myself in a room for two weeks. And every day we thought the flag might go down. I was told by a senator tomorrow and then it wouldn't go down. I was going to ask you, are you doing a follow up to uh, to this story, The Flag and the Fury? I do think about following it up in that I am fascinated by Mississippi. I still think there are a lot of stories that we want to tell there. Um, I'm also fascinated by Kentucky. I mean, I'm fascinated by all of these places that I don't feel like, you know, I mean, the media is centered so so much on the coasts, and I don't feel, and there's such a sort of a bad history of of people on the coast going to these places almost with pith helmets on and, and uh, doing these kind of... Uh, like um, exoticizing narratives of the uh, the backward Southerners, uh, even as an Arab guy who grew up in the South and didn't feel a part of that place, I still get annoyed by that. Um, and so I, I I think there's a lot of stories to tell about the true diversity of the South. And so uh, I'd like to do more stories about Mississippi. Uh, maybe not the flag, but I mean part of what we part of all the leads that Shima was following before we got to the flag story, we were we were looking at southern gothic horror that had to do with mississippi we were looking at food deserts we were looking at um at the just the staggering number of writers that come out of mississippi uh there's just so many stories to tell from that place so we might do more of that i've done a lot of stories in uh, louisiana and i have a little bit the same feeling about that not just in new orleans but like in smaller parts uh and it's just, it's so fascinating and rich and it's like so more complicated than, than the stereotypes that you hear. Oh, yeah. So I, I actually re reached out to the juror who was the big advocate for this story. One of the things she wanted to know was, um, which I thought was really interesting, a story like this easily could have cast Mississippi as the villain. And yet the main characters maintain what seems to be a real affection for the state. Had it... How did you manage or nurture or what part did, you know, how did that work um, to get that perspective? I, I think right from the start when we started uh, researching and reaching out to Mississippi residents and teachers, um, looking at the region, that was a huge problem that a lot of people faced was um, even in other states across the South, they would say, well, at least we're not Mississippi. I'd hear that over and over again. And so I felt very actually protective of the state. I felt like, oh, people just see it very much one way, but it can't be just um, that simple. And I was protective of the people in the state. And I really wanted to show their story as nuanced and deep. And no matter what color or background, whatever, um, it's such a rich place and 
we really wanted to do service to that. We were very nervous balancing all the different viewpoints and the tragedy, the tragedies that have occurred there that we couldn't pretend hadn't um, coupled with the creative spirit that's emerged through triumphant triumphing over really harsh realities in that region. Like I think of uh, Alexis de Tocqueville, right, wrote that book about uh, on America, right, where he toured toured uh, America. And it, it, one of the things he said about like the greatest part of America is it is it uh, it's sort of a, a habit of the heart he said, which was Americans at their best will identify with all perspectives but give in to none. And I think that's kind of what 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 a what a reporter and a journalist has to do. You have to identify with every single person that you meet, even the people that you think you hate. And you have to identify with every single one, but give in to none of them and hold your own position so that you can synthesis and be a bridge between these viewpoints. And so I just think like part of part of it is just an ethical starting point. You even and, and this is what I was so I, I, I love those moments in the story where you hear Shima talking to uh, senators on both sides, you know, and, and it, there's no one's ever vilified, even for people who are standing for uh, a flag that I think we can all agree is 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 racist. Um, but still, you just you want to understand their perspective. Uh, but you never want to just give in to those perspectives. So you want to synthesize them together. Did you have any concern about the prominence of Lawrence Dennis's voice in the story? We were, yeah, we thought a lot about that in the final cut of the episode, um, especially because this year has been really hard for everyone. And um, this has been a moment for letting people be their own heroes and not allowing the idea of someone else, like a white person coming in and saving the day about the Mississippi flag. I, I mean, I heard that echoed around me amongst my peers. And so I was very sensitive, but no one saves anyone in this story. Yeah. I mean, we thought a lot about that. Honestly, we, Lauren was the very first person that we really, whose story we really sunk into as as we were learning about this issue, but it was very clear from the beginning that uh, there are a lot of issues. I mean, do we feature this uh, white woman who's the granddaughter of a segregationist? Is that the right move when there's been so much work that's led to her? She's just, and she herself would say she's one piece of a huge story. So. Uh, we thought about sequence. It felt important to us to start with John Hawkins, who was the very first person who got the ball rolling. The cheerleader. And finding him, yeah, the cheerleader, and finding him, getting him to agree to talk when he had never shared his story really fully in 40 years. We spent weeks and weeks and weeks working on that and then finally gaining his trust so that he would then share some of his um, colleagues at the time with us. And so... It felt very, very important to us that we begin with that story because that is the beginning. Um, and then overall, it felt a lot, it, it was so much about balance. And I think what Shima was just saying, which is uh, Lauren doesn't save the day in the end. The, it, ends, it ends on a bittersweet note for her where part of the um, sort of sea change that happened in the uh, BLM protest in the wake of George Floyd um, made it such that it was kind of untenable for a, a white person to redesign the flag on her own. It needed to be representative of more voices. And so she was basically sidelined and chose to sideline herself. So um, that was part of the story in a way. 
uh, her whiteness became part of the story. When you look back, um, are there particular moments in this podcast that stood out to you as the highlights? I think about the first two and a half minutes when Kiese Lehman reads his, um, his own alternate pledge to the flag. I pledge to never be passive, patriotic, or grateful in the face of American abuse. I pledge to always thoughtfully bite the self-righteous American hand that thinks it's feeding us. I pledge that white Mississippians and white Americans will never dictate who I choose to be or what symbols I choose to imbue with meaning. I pledge to not allow American ideals of patriotism and masculinity to make me hard, abusive, generic, and brittle. I pledge to messily love our people and myself better than I did yesterday. That came from an essay he wrote about a flag, his his own kind of reckoning with the American flag when he was teaching, uh, I believe, at the University of Mississippi and was living in one of the sort of faculty dorms. And outside of his dorm was this American flag. But it was a tattered, shredded, faded flag. And he wasn't really sure what to do with it. And and uh, he ultimately decides, if I'm going to fly a flag, it's going to look like that. Um I also like finding people that no one can reach. I like the impossible. So for instance, John Hawkins, no one could talk to him. He had not shared the story. One time I found him in an interview sharing a little bit about what happened, but never like this. And so I found his brother. It was through one of the many people I had interviewed in Mississippi who isn't in the episode. She was such a saving grace. I, t- I told her, I'm trying to find John Hawkins. She said, his brother is police chief at UMIS. I thought, what? So I called the police station and left many messages for the police chief about his brother and that I just want to tell a great story. And then um, I had found John, uh, John Hawkins' contact and I tried to reach him, but he would not respond to me. And his brother is the one who called him and said, hey, there's this girl, she's very earnest, but I think she's like, I think she's, you know, pretty sweet. Like she's sincere. And so John got on the phone with me. We spoke for two hours. I was able to share with him that, 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 that thing that you uh, asked about, which is how much we loved Mississippi, how we didn't want to make it two-dimensional, how we saw it as as a universe unto itself, just like each person is a universe unto themselves within the story. And so, um, yeah, and so he allowed us to get on the phone, Clara Justice, speaking to her. Some of the things she was talking about being a cheerleader alongside John at that time, you know, she'd call me after interviews and say, I realized I have PTSD. My kids are noticing that I'll remember things a week after I talk to you because I've blocked this time in my life out of my memory. You know, you just had this election in November. What, did you expect that to happen? Did you expect the flag? Were you flabbergasted or by this time did you know it was gonna happen? I think we expect, I, I expected it, you know. Public opinion and, and, and just like the, the, the pace of change is such a funny thing. Um, like to live in the South, to live in Tennessee, for example, is to live in a place where, which is, it just feels like it's eternally a red state, and it's a state which tolerates the grand wizard of the KKK, the first grand wizard, having his head immortalized in, a, in bronze in the state legislature. But then to see how quickly certain things have changed in the last year, um, 
has been amazing to me, particularly on issues of uh, of race and institutional racism and these kinds of things. These conversations where people had been trying to bring these conversations in for so long, and suddenly it's just there, and it's just mainstreamed. I think for a long time we've looked at the world like it's like things are separate and things are not as diverse as they are. And Mississippi is a much more diverse place than we think. And also our friendships are getting more diverse. You know, our love is getting more diverse. And I think the speed at which things are happening is indicative of the fact that there's this younger generation where they have friends that are gay. They have friends from every background. You know, an iceberg, if you pick at it, it looks like nothing's happening and all at once you just do one more hit and the entire iceberg splits open. This is scientific kind of phenomena. And I feel like that's what's happening in the country. It's like things were being picked out, picked out, picked out 10 years, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60. And now you've got this time where it's just the entire iceberg is like breaking apart. And the reason why it's hard to do journalism too is we see that there's so many stories in one story. It's not just Kiese Lehman's story. It is Lauren Stennis's story. It's John Stennis' story, no matter what his viewpoint is, even if we don't like it, you know? I don't have to like everything that I'm learning or reporting. And so I think the more our world is becoming diverse and our friendships are diverse and our workplaces, that naturally leads to just more complex journalism and beautiful journalism. It's not just this person did this, you know, that person is evil. It's no, everyone is mixed. Everyone's a mixed bag. And that was the beauty is every character had plus and minus. We don't make anyone an angel and we don't make anyone a devil. None of us are. I don't know what you would say about this, but there's so much of a a drumbeat of fake news and disinformation and what is truth and what is fake news and um, how does it affect you? How bad is the problem and what can journalists do about this? Has it, has it affected you in your work? Yes and no. I mean, we're so kind of all over the place when it comes to, you know, like for example, in my radio lab world, we uh, will cover anything. And so we're, we're not always doing sort of hard hitting political journalism. But it, it does affect us in that um, there is a sense that, you know, the the core basis of reporting is finding what objectively happened. And that is um, getting harder and harder right now. Uh, but, it, but it does, it's interesting. Like, I have started to refashion my idea of what a journalism should do. I don't know if I'm alone on an island when I say this, but... Uh, I think that approach of like just the facts, ma'am, you know, which was which was the original definition of journalism. I don't know that that has worked, frankly. Um, we are in a moment where we just have to acknowledge the multiplicity of truths that are out there. For me, this story was that kind of endeavor where trying to sort of see all of the different realities, all the different definitions of what is true and and and. and navigate and model a way of approaching that complexity for the audience um but yeah it's a very different it's a very difficult uh difficult time to be doing what we're doing it's a difficult time to be a journalist because the definition because it's harder to be a journalist it's you know with forces exerting against you or because the whole idea of what journalism is is undergoing this scrutiny and this kind of change 
I think both. I think both, you know. I do think that the overall definition of journalism is changing and probably should change, you know, in terms of, and we, we just spoke about this, in terms of who gets to tell the stories, uh, in terms of, you know, these issues that are, that are running through every newsroom about moral clarity versus objectivity, all of these things are really important questions that are, I think, internally reformatting journalism in terms of what it's going to look like. Um, and uh, all I can say is that my own personal definition of journalism is that I, I personally am not interested in what I believe to be righteous. I am interested in taking my ideas of the world and just acknowledging how impoverished they are and going outside of them and, and going outside my own cultural viewpoint, my own geographic viewpoint, um, my own lived experience. You know, you touched on this a little bit earlier um, when we were setting up, but I wanted to ask, and we're sort of asking everybody, what uh, what does the pandemic, how does the pandemic affect your work? How does it change things? This story, I think a lot of it was reported uh, in the early days of the pandemic when when we all were just told, go into your homes and don't, don't leave. Uh, and so, so much of that, uh, of the final stages of this, of this story, when, uh, when events were unfolding on the ground, and it was very much a kind of a, uh, a legislative procedural is that what what the story becomes in the end all of those votes were happening when we it was just us in our rooms all of the work that we do is so rooted in going out like literally going out in the world going out of your own viewpoint going outside right but you can't so we had to figure out ways to um to get that tape uh through archival, so I mean, I think we tilted very heavily towards archival material, uh, having people record themselves with their cell phones. Uh, in a way that, you know, what you can't get in field texture, which is so important to the work, you now have to kind of get by over-reporting, by just getting as many voices as you can and getting as much information as you can. And, um, you know, I mean, the great thing about the work is that it's very multifaceted, and if one one of the you know, things isn't available to you, then you lean harder in the other direction. And so I, in some way, I feel like it's made us better reporters, but also it, you feel cut off. You feel a bit cut off. And so, um, you know, you try, you just try your best. It, it feels commonplace now to do these interviews when from, I mean, everything is happening in this chair that I'm sitting in, but I cannot wait for the day when we actually get to go out in the world again and actually be in a room and and uh, that's because that's that that feels so special to me now when it used to just feel very ordinary. Yeah, it's it's been such an adjustment. And I you, you keep wondering what is going to stay like what have we that we have begun to do in this virtual world will now be commonplace and the rest of when things get back to normal. Uh, we ask this in all our interviews. What is your advice since we are a journalism school? What is your advice to young journalists? I don't know. I mean, that's a that's a really hard question. I'll answer it for a young journalist trying to make audio stories. Let's just I'll I'll discuss. I'll go there. Um, you know the um, the the world we live in now is 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 such that like you don't have to ask permission. You know, I mean, when I got into this, which was back in the Stone Age of two thousand nineteen ninety nine two thousand there really were gatekeepers and you had to just kind of hang around until they lowered the gate and that 
sometimes took meant working without pay for years before anyone noticed that you were even there. Oh, you're still here? Okay, fine. Here, go do this interesting work. It's not that way anymore. I mean, I, there's, uh, you know, you can make a podcast right now and just with, uh, with a mic and a laptop and you can, in, within 48 hours, put it on SoundCloud and get it on iTunes. Uh, nobody has to say yes or no to you. So I guess that that's a that's a beautiful reality. Um, so my my um, the first part of my advice would be, don't wait, you know, just do it. Um, get out there. Uh, no no one can stop you. But then the, the sort of the flip side of this kind of like bounty is that there's just so much. I mean, in my in my little neighborhood, I think someone did a tally. I mean, there's like a million podcasts with several hundred thousand being added every month. I don't know how anyone finds anything right now, which means if you're new and you're starting out in my world, uh, it takes a while to, to, to get an audience. It takes a while for anyone to pay attention. So that second part of my, my uh, advice would be sort of contradicting the first, which is be patient. So like, don't wait, but give it a minute. Those would be my two pieces of advice. That is such great advice. Thank you so much to Radio Lab's Jad Abumrad and Shima Oliai. Yeah, and it seems like they did exactly what he's advising our students to do. You have to get out there, chase stories, and be unafraid of taking chances. But at the same time, be sure that the work you produce is meaningful and has depth. And that is what we see with so many DuPont submissions. Reporters and producers who find these incredible stories and stick with them. They dig deeper, adding context, and really going that extra mile in their reporting. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, submissions for the 2022 DuPont Awards are open. And for more information, to submit your work, head to DuPont.org, our website. The deadline, once again, July 1. July the 1st. Okay, this episode of On Assignment was brought to you with the support of the Jesse Bell DuPont Fund and Columbia Journalism School, and it was produced by J-School grad Jack Rossiter-Munley. We also had production assistance from our new production coordinator, Melanie Marich. Our music is by Dylan Nowick. Follow us on Twitter at Columbia Journ. Until next time.